Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. This is James Corbett. You're tuned into CorbettReport.com on this 22nd day of July, 2013. And I'm back with another edition of Questions for Corbett just before I hit the road. As you know, I'm going to be out of town for the next couple of weeks with GRTV, so there's not going to be much in the way of updates to the website during that time. But before I go, I thought I'd clear out the inbox and do another in, uh, episode of Questions for Corbett. So as you know by now, the best way to get your questions in, either through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, via Twitter, at CorbettReport, or through the YouTube comments or video responses to the previous edition of Questions for Corbett. Those are the best ways to get your questions to me, and I will do my best to answer as many of them as we can fit into half an hour, so in the interest of saving time, let's get straight into it. Uh, usually video responses get the first priority, but actually I forgot a Twitter question from last time, so let's go straight to Twitter. We got a tweet in from TomMeX10, who writes, What is your take on Jahar's case in Boston? Will he get a fair trial? Uh, thank you for the question. I, I assume you mean Jokar, Jokar Tsarnaev, who has been, of course, fin- fingered for blame and responsibility for the Boston bombing. And it's a softball question because I think the answer is quite obviously no, he's not going to get a fair trial. And there are many different indications of that, the latest of which, of course, is the glorification of Jokar as a rock star on the cover of Rolling Stone, which is getting a lot of controversy. But really what the controversy is doing is, of course, helping to sell uh, copies of Rolling Stone. And when people actually read the article, they'll find nothing but uh, basically a complete whitewash from start to finish, just propping up the official Boston bombing story, again, without any evidence whatsoever, any pictures of Jokar actually putting the bomb down, etc. But uh, he's already been convicted, firmly convicted in the court of public opinion, so it would be uh, incredible and amazing if anything other than a guilty verdict is to be handed down when this case eventually wraps up. Um, And there are different aspects to this. In fact, there's the video that's making the rounds right now suggesting that the person who is being tried is not even actually physically Jokard Sarnayev. And I'll put a link into that in the show notes. Uh, Another very interesting one that kind of slipped through the radar, but uh, this was sent in by a reader from a a website, zhn.cz or zhn.cz for my British and uh, Canadian friends out there. Um, They they had an interesting write-up on a court transcript of uh, uh, Jokar's first appearance in court, uh, a hearing transcript, that was came out on April 22nd of 2013. And this was posted on CNN and, and Wall Street Journal. And they took this PDF and they actually analyzed the document. And its creation date actually sources back to 2006, June 2nd, 2006. And this means that either the computer that was running this, uh, that was making this PDF, was e- either has its clock set seven years behind, or uh, or for some somehow this this document was actually created in 2006. Uh, that in itself was interesting. But um, shortly after the article about this was released in the Czech language in Czech. Uh, they, there, according to this website, there was an unknown browser, unknown uh, IP address that accessed that document, and suddenly the CNN uh, transcript was again changed, was uh, actually revised. Um, and they go into how it was revised by PDF Factory 3.52 and how the, the different uh, parts of this label don't add up and it looks like it's been tampered with, blah, blah, blah. Suffice it to say, some interesting things even going on with the court transcripts. So there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes uh, that show that this is probably just a big stage trial anyway. 
So, uh, so I'm certainly not putting any faith that anything, uh, any justice will come out of this. So thank you for the tweet. Uh, once again, you can always tweet your questions at Corbett Report, and I'll be happy to uh, answer them in the next questions for Corbett. Next, let's go to some video responses. Uh, first of all, we have one in from YouTube user Dennis Stamps. That's youtube.com slash Dennis Stamps, who has a question about the floods in my hometown of Calgary. All right, so um, I had a question here for questions for Corbett. It's kind of a long question with uh, multiple parts, so I'll get right into it here. The first part has to do with um, the floods in southern Alberta, here in Canada, um, over the past couple of weeks, causing absolute devastation. At least three fatalities, billions of dollars in damage, and uh, lives just ruined. This is expected to affect the Canadian economy it has already disrupted the lives of countless people, literally tens of thousands of people, uh, displaced them from their homes, ruined their homes in a lot of cases, and uh, it's just been just unspeakable, the devastation that's gone on here. And perhaps uh, one of the most disturbing parts about this whole thing is that there is evidence that this was a man-made storm, that uh, weather manipulation techniques were used to inundate the foothills and the Rocky Mountain area with uh, inordinate amounts of moisture and just hover a system over our area for day after day after day uh, to inundate us with rain. And I remember you doing a video on geoengineering not too long ago called The Real Climate Threat. So I'm sure you can appreciate um, the possibility that indeed weather manipulation was used in this case or could have been used in this case. Um, I'll provide links to the evidence in the description. The second part of the um, question here is in regards to our city's mayor, and I hope I'm saying this right, Nahid Nenshi. He's up for re-election this October, and prior to the floods there is um, some signs that his support was starting to leak a little bit, starting to show some chinks in the armor, but hey. What a difference a well-timed crisis can make. Okay, we'll stop the uh, video there. It's actually a 13-minute video, and it goes into a lot more detail about uh, the Calgary and about Calgary's mayor and all of that. So I, I hope people will go and watch the full video. Of course, that'll be linked up from the uh, show notes of this video. But uh, thank you again for the question. It is a good question. It's a valuable question because as uh, I've pointed out and others have pointed out, weather manipulation is real. It's not sci-fi fantasy. It's, it's admitted. They've been doing it and practicing it and working on it for 60 years and even declassified things about what they were doing in Vietnam now show they were, you know, directing typhoons and the like. So absolutely this is possible and it can uh, be used. So was it used in Calgary? Again, it's a good question. Certainly, this is not this is unlike any flooding that has ever happened in living memory in Calgary. So it, it's certainly unusual. Um, does this mean that it was necessarily uh, put together by geoengineering? Well, no. So what is the evidence for this? Well, if you follow the links uh, that uh, Dennis Stamps included in his video, you'll you'll find some websites talking about, for example, the Nexrad radar system in the United States and how the uh, the system tracked uh, and developed along the Nexrad radar routes, which I find to be, um, well, unconvincing at best, because when you actually look at the Nexrad radar coverage map of the United States, I defy you to find a single weather system anywhere in the United States that could not be said to to be tracking along the Nexrad uh, system. It, it has an exceptionally dense coverage across the entire contiguous United States. 
So I don't think that there's there's much reason to say that it, this storm developed particularly along those tracks. And also the Nexrad radar system itself is a uh, Doppler pulse system. It is it is conventional radar. So uh, it's not ionospheric heaters like HARP. There's no question that there was some sort of ionospheric directing of this, this storm or anything of that sort. These are simply r- passive radar systems. So I don't see how Nexrad has anything to do with this. I'm, I stand to be corrected if someone has more information on that. But even given that um, the the basically the the theory that, that Dennis Stamps is is laying out in his video is talking about Mayor ne- uh, Nenshi in Calgary and how he may have been using this uh, this flood to to try to rejuvenate his his political career and try to uh, get reelected um, and in I believe civic elections coming up in the fall I'm not sure about that but uh, civic elections coming up and uh, he wants to rejuvenate his campaign and get reelected despite dwindling popularity along comes a storm big floods he becomes the hero. Um, certainly, we do know how this works with uh, Mayor Giuliani trying to become Mr. 9-11 in the wake of 9-11, parading on the corpses of all those people that uh, he was uh, involved in uh, helping to to murder and cover up and clean up um, that, that entire crime scene. So uh, that backfired to a large extent on Giuliani. And of course, with his presidential campaign in 2008, it didn't work out so well when the New York firefighters started calling him out on being, um, well, a despicable human being. So, uh, so we know that that can backfire as well, but we certainly do know the uh, the idea that politicians love to use disasters to parade on the corpses of the victims, and to uh, to basically try to use that to rejuvenate their political careers. In this uh, Calgary flooding case, not so many corpses, but certainly quite a spectacular event and. As with all such events, people t- tend to rally around the people who are supposedly leading them, like Mayor Nenshi and the like. So there is something to that, and I, I have no doubt that Mayor Nenshi will try to use that that momentum from the floods. Um, but again, even fitting into the idea that this was weather manipulation through the Nexrad radar system... Uh, until there's uh, any type of linkage between the mayor's office in Calgary and the Nexrad radar system, uh, again, that seems uh, about 15 steps of uh, inference too far to be making at this point. I don't see any connection there, and I don't know how on earth those would be related. That weather manipulation takes place, I have no doubt, but that um, the mayor of Calgary has access to these the, these technologies and can hey, why don't you guys create a storm for me kind of thing. I, I, uh, to me, that's well outside the, the, the boundary of reasonable speculation at this point, because again, there's just nothing to indicate that there's anything of that sort. Um, I would imagine that the real people who are controlling the real weather manipulation um, technologies are several steps above uh, the mayor of Calgary. Um, but uh, I, I do really recommend people watch the rest of that video because he talks about Mayor Ninchi's connections with Imagine Calgary and Agenda 21 implementation in Calgary, which is valuable, and I think people should know about that information. I just don't see any reason to believe that he had any role whatsoever to play in the manipulation of weather in Calgary or that this was a manipulated event. Again, I'm open to, uh, to more information on the subject, but from what I've seen, I'm just completely unconvinced. Um, moving right along, there's another video response in from uh, what's become a regular uh, video response contributor, which I'm happy to do. Again, video responses get their priority in these questions for Corbett episodes, so please get your own video responses in. Um, and let's turn to No Longer a Theory, who left this video response on the last video. Um, I watched your Michael Hastings piece, and informative as usual, um, but I sure found myself wondering after watching it and the whole thing with this Michael Hastings should be like because he came out of New York and went to school for journalism and 
you know, I'm sorry for my ignorance, but I'm assuming you did too in Canada. But should we not see some sort of tipping point now between academia and, I guess, establishment? Like, the people that are teaching these courses, like, not in high school and stuff, but coming out of universities and, uh, you know, with degrees in journalism, or, you should, like, don't they feel like their hands are tied? That they can't even, what's the point in even teaching journalists anymore? Like, you know, this war on journalism is about 10 years deep, I think, now, so, or at least in the public eye. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering, we never hear stories of of that nature um, or even you know even the stuff going before university like stuff from high school like we never learned well I never watched Eisenhower's farewell address from his you know a sitting president any of JFK speeches I never heard any of the quotes from the prime ministers or presidents about our currency never heard about the Gulf of Tonkin all this stuff in school so now that we know the truth of these things and they are fact and they're in the public domain via the internet aren't these teachers uh forced to or do they just turn a blind eye i'm just so confused as to shouldn't we see a shift with academia pushing back saying look you know these are the facts and but so if this makes any sense at all, and you have the time to answer it, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for everything you do, James. Take care. All right. Thank you once again for the video response. No longer a theory. Um, I'm not sure I exactly know precisely what you're asking in this question, but I do I, I want to pick up from a couple of the things that you point out there. First of all, just a point of correction, I have no degree in journalism, no piece of paper to say that I'm a journalist, and I'm not uh, ashamed of that fact. In fact, it might be a, a point in my favor, because exactly as you point out, I think we have to be suspicious of people who have uh, so, f so completely been absorbed into that mainstream reporting uh, system and the dinosaur media that they actually bothered to get a degree in journalism from one of the respectable uh, places. So th certainly that, I think, is a point in the disfavor of Michael Hastings, as well as some of his interesting connections through his wife and others, uh, speechwriters for Rice and the like. So uh, so there are some, I, I think, points that we definitely have to be uh, very critical of uh, when it comes to people like Hastings and others who are so much embedded in the system. And I think you're right. I mean, uh, embedded journalism is a term that's ar arisen in the past decade for a reason, because journalists are now literally embedded inside of the, uh, the, the military apparatus and machinery of the big war engine of the United States and its allies. And uh, what does this say about journalism in general? What did the lead up to Iraq, the Iraq war say about journalism in general? And I think you're right to uh, put at least some of this blame on academia um, uh, there's no question that academia has bought in a uh, hook, line, and sinker to a lot of this, and that shouldn't be particularly surprising because, of course, that the tenures and the cushy jobs come at the expense of uh, of being able to to truly exercise the so-called academic freedoms that they they believe in. You don't get tenure unless you're the type of professor that's going to play ball. So, uh, so this is exactly how the system works, and uh, and it's tragic and lamentable, but uh, but it's there nonetheless. And if people want more information on this, I would suggest they turn to a conversation that I had on, I believe, Corbett Report Radio, or was it a GRTV video? At any rate, I'll put the link into the show notes. 
uh, of J- w- uh, conversation with Dr. James Tracy, um, of course, who is, has become well known for some of his work on Sandy Hook and the like at the Memory Hole blog. Um, but uh, we had a conversation specifically about truth in the academy that might be of interest to you re- with regards to those comments. So thank you again for the video response. Once again, video responses do get the priority here. So if you uh, are interested, I'll leave the video responses open to this video on YouTube so you can record your own. Let's move on to some of the emails that we've gotten in recently. Uh, we'll start with one from Ian, who writes, given the evidence of prolonged repairs in other emblematic in New York buildings prior to her- the horrific events of 9-11, it is, simply, is it simply paranoia to wonder if we are, being, uh, if we are to be treated to another spectacular? Um, end quote. All right, I believe this is referring to the Statue of Liberty and, uh, and the fact that it's been closed to the public for a long time, etc. I, I, I assume that's what this is about. Um, at any rate, I, I mean, certainly, I think this is something that, that plays into the 9-11 story and has been really diligently researched by Kevin Ryan, who was looking at who had access to the buildings, under what pretenses, for how long, who were the, uh, the people behind those companies. He has really done more research, more hard-hitting research on this than a lot of other people. So I hope people will take a look at Kevin Ryan's work on, on that. And uh, could that be used again? I mean, should we be suspicious if there are prolonged repairs going on to major uh, emblematic buildings in in New York and the like? Uh, Certainly, it is a vector that I think people should be looking at, but I don't know if, I mean, unless people can find something, something substantial about, for example, the companies that are working on these repairs and the connections and, and, and things like that. But then again, it's still like reading the tea leaves. And I've seen bajillions of predictions over the last several years about the next false flag attack. And every single one of them, every single one of them has been wrong. So, uh, so I don't, I don't put any stock or faith in the ability to, to look at these things and, and try to find out what's going to happen beforehand through something as obscure as the repairs to the buildings. It's extremely difficult to do. I'm certainly, as always, willing to be corrected. So if anyone has more any, any more details about that for me or, and or Ian, please uh, send them in. Uh, let's move along to Wiley, who writes, uh, regarding the Michael Hastings car hacking report, do you suppose it might have been possible to hack airplanes in September 2001? Uh, well, thank you for the question, uh, Wiley. Yes, indeed, I do think that would be possible. In fact, it's not my thought. It's not my belief. It's something that we already know about. We know that there are already precision guiding systems for uh, large-scale Boeing aircraft that were being used in 2000, if, the, if memory serves, in Alaska um, to try to pilot, uh, to see if the, the, the automatic systems could pilot planes down in through mountain valleys with very uh, very narrow corridors to, to, to really test out that technology and see how, how precision it could be. Um, this is something that, in fact, I've discussed in, in greater detail with Aidan Monahan, who's done a lot of the legwork in getting FOIA documents and, and uh, doing this type of analysis. And he specifically looked into the, uh, the issue of remote-controlled planes, and he's been looking at that for years. So we had a conversation specifically about one of his uh, papers that he published on this subject. I'll put the link into that interview so you can go and listen to it, where he was talking about the, uh, the arc radius of the curve that brought one of the planes into the uh, the towers was a little too precise to be human etc so so there and, and of course there was the AWACS the mystery plane over uh, the Pentagon and and uh, New York that morning there's all sorts of things along those lines and I, I I agree that I think someone needs to really assemble that information into one piece and since I don't see anyone else doing it I guess I'll be the one um, perhaps coming up to, as we approach the uh, the 12th anniversary of 9/11. 
How time flies. All right, uh, let's move along to a tweet in from at ChristyXY, who writes, Do you think Clark's comments, Richard Clark's comments on car cyber attacks are genuine or could be a hint slash warning to journalists to stay in line? Uh, Thank you for the email, uh, or thank you for the tweet. Um, I... I have really racked my brain about Richard Clark's comments, and I can't see any other possible explanation for them, except for the fact that they are explicitly a warning um, to journalists, to whistleblowers, to people of all stripes that, hey, look, this is what the U.S. government uh, can do to you. Because remember, Richard Clark specifically said United States intelligence uh, agencies can do this. Why would he? I mean, one could even imagine why he would talk about car hacking in general, but why he would specifically say the intelligence agencies of major powers, including including the United States can do this. Uh, to see that as anything other than a warning would be, well, I'm, I can't think of another interpretation that really fits those facts. So uh, thank you again for the tweet. Let's move along to an email from Bert, who writes, In the past years, we've seen a big push to privatize the world's resources of drinking water. Do you think that we are heading for a world water market with one world price, just like oil or gold? Uh, this is a very perceptive question. I think this is one of the future environmental disaster problems that are going to be used to manipulate world events in the future. As the climate change uh, hype starts to fall apart, uh, increasingly so, and I'll have more to say on that in the near future, but as that continues to fall apart and be exposed for the sham pseudoscience that it is, I think there will be other vectors taken to try to maintain the environmental hysteria that is always used to try to drive the push for global government and global governance and whatever else they want to call it through the United Nations, one of those vectors is going to be the uh, the loss of biodiversity is going to be one of those things that they're already laying the groundwork for. Um, for example, or the Rio Plus 20 conference and the like, they've already started to lay down that meme. Another one will be the water wars. That uh, is something that is shaping up to be a driving force in the 21st century. Again, whether that's manipulated or whether it's going to be a genuine um, attempt to, to uh, secure water resources, probably a little bit of both. But uh, but this is something that, in fact, uh, uh, Tim Ball, Dr. Tim Ball, has been on this program specifically talking about. We had him on a while ago to talk specifically about this, and I know he's been doing other work on this subject, so we'll probably have him on again in the future to continue talking about the, uh, the world uh, water wars that are shaping up and how they're going to start affecting 21st century geopolitics. Very insightful email. Let's move on to the next one. Nathan writes... What are your thoughts on the media extending the left-right paradigm to foreign policy, labeling Islamists right and secularists left, or even nationalist parties right and socialist parties left in Europe? Um, Lastly, does the same left-right paradigm exist in Japan? Uh, Thank you for the question, Nathan. Uh, yes, well, uh, the the left right uh, through its various forms and permutations is is something that is almost universally used in in the uh, the so-called uh, you know developed western democracies because it is such an effective means of control it doesn't always look the same it doesn't always fall down along the same lines along the same issues uh, it looks different in different countries so that's things that are major issues in some countries are not issues in others um, but but there is there is always that type of divide between the two main ruling ideologies. And that may be represented in a multitude of parties. Um, I mean, it's hard to think of another system that is as bipolarized as the United States with the Republicans and Democrats, and pretty much that's it. Most of the parliamentary democracies, for example, have several um, parties, usually only two of which are really viable. and, uh, And it's the other parties that can wield the power as coalition members and the like. So so it is a slightly different flavor to it, but it is broadly 
divided into two ends of the spectrum. And again, in Japan, that looks different than it does in the United States, which looks different than Europe. So they do have different issues. But again, it's the fundamental psychology that they're playing with, fundamental human psychology to uh, to divide things into teams, to have the teams fight against each other. You choose a team. Your identity is invested in that team. And thereby, anything that that team does or anything that they argue for, you are more likely to say, well, that's, that's my position because I'm on that team. So that, that's a fundamental part. I mean, they... The, humans are the most studied uh, species on the planet in terms of their psychology and how it influences their decisions. So absolutely, this is an essential part of understanding the democratic system in any country. Um, so we have to be aware of that and we have to, uh, again, completely and utterly reject the left-right divide, which does only serve to keep people who have everything in common, apart, uh, f- fighting at each other's throats, uh, and apart from the p- uh, people who are really puppeting the system, who have nothing whatsoever in common with these people, but they can wear the cloak of the, the blue team or the red team and thus become the saviors. It's a ridiculous system when viewed from, from outside of it, but since so many people are locked into that left-right prison, it is difficult to get their minds out of it. Um, so let's move on. Mark writes, uh, my passport is almost expired and next year I want to travel to Australia. I live in the Netherlands and since a couple of years ago, they started taking fingerprints for the biometric passports. I don't want to comply with this and stay out of the grid. You travel as well. So you must have a passport as well. Uh, do you have a biometric passport and therefore locked and therefore are locked into the grid? Uh, Good question, Mark. Thank you for the question. This is an exceptionally important point because this is one of those points at which the uh, the current paradigm, the current system, has you by the... uh the, the, the sensitive area, we'll say. Um, absolutely, because if you want to travel, um, you can try traveling without a passport, but you're not going to get very far, at least uh, not in any way that's going to be a comfortable ride, unless, of course, perhaps you're sneaking through uh, the U.S.'s southern border. But uh, but that being what it is, um, absolutely, the uh, the biometric passports are going to be one of the most insidious ways to, to get people into the biometric system. Of, of course, it's already going on through the driver's licenses and the like, without most people's knowledge or understanding that that's what those digital photographs and increasingly fingerprints are all about. Um, So this is important. And if you're going to travel from the Netherlands to Australia, and uh, I don't think there's going to be another way around it. If you want to, you're going to have to take the passport. If you're going to have to take the passport, you're going to have to take the fingerprints. The only thing for it is for us en masse to stop, start rejecting these technologies and start saying no. And, uh, and, demanding that uh, that uh, this gets changed and what form that demanding is going to take again i think the fundamental restructuring of the system and the ultimate elimination of the governments that pretend to have authority uh, to regulate such things is the only thing that's going to work in the meantime but you can try lobbying your government and asking them pretty please stop taking our fingerprints and uh, and i hope that works and uh, people might want to turn to my recent uh, conversation with Kay Bailey where we talked about what's going on in Oklahoma, her court case trying to get uh, the the injunction to stop taking or to allow an exemption for people who don't want to uh, give up their biometric details to get a driver's license. And we'll see. I mean, I, I genuinely hope that she's successful in that case. We'll see if that happens. I hope people are following that. But again, um, it's going to be a long uphill battle and most people are probably just going to go along to get along. And on that note, I am a Canadian citizen living in Japan, so I have a Canadian passport and uh, I couldn't be here without one and it is uh, it is so that 
that is the system I'm locked into. At this point, there's no biometric fingerprints for my Canadian passport, but there are there is a digital photograph, which undoubtedly um, is fed into the facial recognition software and uh, is part of that database. So um, we are all becoming a part of the system, whether we know it or not. And uh, if people, um, I mean, the only thing that I think we can do at this point is to stop giving our details up. And that means no trip to Australia. Um, so uh, it, it's a difficult decision to for people to make. And I, I hope that uh, that people will understand that the fundamental root of the problem is the, uh, the governments themselves that proclaim to have the right to be able to do this, to regulate this international travel. And it's important to think about, the again, people tend to think what the system as it exists now is just natural. You can't imagine any other system, except for passports were only invented, I, I believe, a century, century and a half ago. Um, so, I mean, freedom of travel used to be a basic, uh, not a human right, just a fact of existence. It wasn't until they started coming along and uh, and imposing these passport and travel documents that suddenly this, this entire system, as we now have completely naturalized it, came into existence. All right, a very important question. All right, next, uh, let's go to a question from B. Pai, who writes, uh, regarding Jews, Nazis, communists, Zionists, Masons, would you hazard undertaking the sorting out of fact and fiction in this arena at all? And B. Pai provided a link to a page that was claiming that Hitler was, in fact, a um, uh, w- was trying to get rid of the Rothschilds from Germany. Um, which I think is a complete and utter load of baloney, not only because Hitler was a Rothschild, the uh, the son of Alois Hitler, who was himself the illegitimate child of Maria Anna Schickelgruber, who happened to be a servant girl who got pregnant whilst working at the the mansion of Baron Rothschild. Oh, an illegitimate son of a servant girl of Baron Rothschild, and uh, his son ends up becoming uh, Hitler. Yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? Uh, Hitler and the Nazis were 100% completely and utterly set up and 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 made it into what they were by the, the international banking community and the international uh, crony capitalists, um, including those in America. Uh, 100% documentable and on the record. You can look at all of the various connections um, and, and they're they're deep and multiplicitous. So I'll include some links into some of what I'm about to just go over in passing here because there is extremely important and uh, and I think I'll have to put this together into a more coherent presentation at some point. But for example, you have the the so-called Young Plan, which was enacted in 1930. It was part of the the uh, the wrangling over German reparations and how are they going to pay and they're they're failing in their payments. So how do we get this going? So the Young Plan was enacted. Uh, it was named after the president of. General Electric at the time, who went by the name of Young. It was also uh, funded into existence through with the help of J.P. Morgan. And this Young plan was uh, enacted in 1930, just as the international banking system was collapsing. Um, Germany went into its Weimar hyperinflationary um, uh, struggle. Uh, so they had to give it a year off of reparation payments. It ended up never it repudiating the reparations and never going back. The Young plan was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back during that period. So uh, General Electric and J.P. Morgan helped to set up the the downfall of the German banking system, which it led to the rise of Hitler um, and the Nazis. And I think we 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 know that connection. But but interestingly enough, one of the interesting aspects of that is that one of the uh, the bodies that was set up as the facilitator of the Young Plan was the Bank for International Settlements (BIS) in Basel, Switzerland, the central bank of the central bankers. And this is the body that, for example, was specifically identified by Carol Quigley in um, *Tragedy and Hope* as the arm, the 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 body, the institution through which the the uh, the powers of international capital had a far-reaching aim. None, nothing less than the consolidation 
implementation of total global control over the financial order. Or I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but that famous quote about the powers of, uh, of international capital having a far-reaching aim directly talking about the Bank for International international Settlements that was enacted as a result of this young plan. Um, you can also look to uh, Carol Quigley, to talk, uh, who talks about how the Milner Group specifically was looking, which was one of the uh, the agents, the, the bodies that were created through the uh, last will and testament of Cecil Rhodes back in the late part of the 19th century um, to create the, the global um, uh, secret society uh, structure. And uh, that w- the Milner group talked about how they had to get uh, Germany and Russia fighting for each other, fighting for control over Eastern Europe so they could more effectively d- divide and conquer them. So they openly talked about having to set up, uh, and, and this was years and years before Hitler even arrived on the scene, they were talking about how they'd have to build up a uh, tyrant and set him up to uh, to fail in Germany. And that's, uh, lo and behold, exactly what ended happening. So throughout the 1930s, after the collapse of the banking system, the uh, Weimar hyperinflation cycle, the, the rise of the Nazis, there's this myth that the neo-Nazis put out there that, oh, Germany turned it around by turning to national socialism and, and they cleaned up their banking and they kicked out the Rothschilds and, and suddenly they had a vibrant economy, which again is total bunk. Their economy was 100% supported by Wall Street and the Wall Street Street cronies, um, including uh, Standard Oil in cooperation with IG Farben, which created the synthetic oil without which the German military literally could not have functioned. Um, you have Ford, you have General Electric, you have uh, DuPont, all of those companies in there with their production facilities, with the American loans and funding flowing into them, IBM and the Hall Earth machines, all of those connections 100% firmly embedded in Germany. And then as Anthony Sutton has, uh, has talked about, and again, you have to read um, uh, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler for all of the deep connections that he uncovered, but including, of course, things like, oh, the, uh, the, 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 the plants and factories of these American corporations in Germany were specifically not bombed during the saturation bombing of Germany. So, uh, so you had, for example, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the General Electric plants, one of them completely unscathed. Uh, several of the others had minor shrapnel damage and windows blown out and the like from bombing going on around them. Or the Ford plant in Cologne, the largest Ford plant in the country and one that the Allies specifically knew was creating machinery and and, uh, weaponry for the German Wehrmacht, um, specifically avoided by the Allied bombers. Um, So again, we know that uh, that American uh, industry and finance was helping the German war machine the entire time. Uh, There was the the connections that lasted all the way up through the 1940s. We know, for example, the Bush family, Bush Harriman, the banking uh, uh, brothers were we're helping to fund uh, Hitler through the back door. Um, and, and that's been, we've talked about that in previous editions of the Corporate Report. There's a very, very, very big picture that I'm attempting to at least paint the broad outlines of here that uh, Hitler was 100% supported by the banksting, banking oligarchy, 100% supported by the financiers and the capitalists from America, and absolutely set up to be the uh, the, the tyrannical dictator that they could fight against that would uh, that would cause, well, everything that World War II caused, including, of course, the aftermath and the creation of the United Nations, which was part, came out of the CFR study group um, that was funded by the Rockefellers. I mean, there's so many connections here that even beginning to uh, to say this in a general way is is so much. So I'll include 
I don't know, as many links as possible in the show notes so you can follow the the threads of the story I'm saying. And as I say, I'll have to put this together into a coherent presentation at some point. But the idea that Hitler was fighting against the Rothschilds and was really against the banking oligarchy is neo-Nazi propaganda, completely, utterly fake. And uh, and this should not, of course, be interpreted as an apologia in any way for Hitler or the Nazis. Of course it isn't, um, just because he was a stooge and a puppet of the globalists who ended up getting double-crossed, by the way. He allowed the Dunkirk evacuation, of course, for example, which he could have completely wiped out the British army and uh, Britain would have been his for the taking. He uh, let them go because he had a secret deal in the back door with the British aristocracy, who we know were all secretly Nazis. Um, This is why Rudolf Hess, his deputy, flew into Scotland, ended up getting taken prisoner and held the rest of his life in a prison, or at least supposedly it was him. Again, there's questions about that. But uh, why did they hold him in prison 30 years after the uh, the end of World War II? Um, Because Hitler was double-crossed. He thought they had a deal. Hess flew in with the documents saying, hey, well, we've got the deal. What, what's going on? They ended up imprisoning him. Uh, that's when Hitler knew he was in deep doo-doo because he was getting double-crossed. He, he has to enact Operation Barbarossa because he knows Stalin's going to open up the Eastern Front because he's getting double-crossed there. And that's why the biggest miscalculation in military history, Operation Barbarossa, that's why it took place. Um, so uh, again, so much to go through with this question. But, uh, but suffice it to say, uh, no, I don't think that uh, that Hitler was really against the banking oligarchy. He was a product of it. And uh, to what extent he was a, a willing dupe, a knowing dupe, wh- uh, whatever. The case is um, uh, the neo-Nazi propaganda about this is totally off base. Uh, let's move on to Brian, who writes, uh, just curious of what you thought uh, your thoughts are on the deep web tour and the Silk Road. Uh, contains some really scary stuff, but also is gaining popularity as a safe slash anonymous place to to reveal the truth about the powers that should not be. Uh, thank you for the question, Brian. Uh, deep Web, Tor, Silk Road. Yes, um, for people who don't know about the Deep Web or the Dark Internet or what, whatever else, what other monikers it goes by, this is something that uh, can only be accessed through the Tor, which is the, the onion routing system, which is uh, a type of... Uh, anonymizing way to access the internet where your your requests and your information get fed into a basically a, a series of, of uh, routers and it gets served around and then passed out and, and then the information gets passed around back to you. The idea is no one can really trace what information is coming from what place to what and going to what place within that system. So you're you're anonymous, except, of course, at the exit nodes and the entry nodes of that. So your connection and the connection on the other side is where the uh, the problem may possibly be. And so Tor has gotten a lot of publicity recently, uh, talking about anonymizing your internet activities, so it's starting to gain some popularity. Uh, it can help you access the, this deep web, uh, which contains such things as the Silk Road, which is a place where you can uh, buy things anonymously through your anonymous Bitcoin and the like. And, uh, and again, this is uh, supposedly an instantiation of agorism, the idea that we can, um, we can supplant the, the current economics paradigm by, by basically boycotting it or not using it. We can do, operate in the black market, and thus we have nothing to do with uh, the, the taxes and controls that are part of the above-ground market. So that's the idea. But of course, the Silk Road gets all the attention for being a place where you buy drugs online and the like. So so, um, so to me, there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, of course, the demonization of an- anonymity is going to be 
uh, very much something that's going to be more and more concentrated on as more and more people become interested in anonymity. And this is reflected in a number of things, including by online um, uh, search engines like DuckDuckGo and StartPage, seeing their numbers exploding as people realize their searches are being tracked and cataloged and databased, finally realizing that Google and the NSA are one and the same. They're turning to alternatives. They're, they're interested in anonymity. So the mainstream propaganda to counter this is going to be, if you're anonymous, you're clearly one of these people who are buying illegal drugs online and doing whatever else, and they're going to demonize that as much as possible via that. And to a certain extent, that's something that uh, is just going to be unavoidable. I mean, there's nothing we can do to try to change the propaganda they're obviously going to try to program the public with. The best thing, the only thing that we can do with regards to that is turn off the TV. Stop buying Time magazine. Stop listening to their radios, their corporate radio stations and the like. I mean, I, I think probably listeners of the Corbett Report already understand that, but that's, some, that's a message we have to spread. Stop buying their propaganda, literally buying their propaganda from them. Um, so, yes, that's one of the ways that the internet is going to be demonized and anonymity in general. Um, regarding the tour specifically, uh, there's a number of problems I have with it. I just don't want to give people the false sense of security from using tour. And there's a couple of points that I make here. First of all, it was admittedly developed by naval intelligence, uh, U.S. naval intelligence. So just like DARPA created the internet, naval intelligence created Tor. So uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a back door, but, uh, well, you know, I, I have my suspicions. But but even so, I mean, even given the technical specs of, of what's going on there, I will, again, I've done this a couple of times, I'll do it again, put a link into Cryptogon, which had a very important post a few years ago now about uh, Washington-based uh, uh, servers that were colluding as exit points in uh, in the Tor network that were uh, openly being controlled by by uh, government agencies. So again, if the exit nodes are, are controlled, then, then the anonymity of the system is something of a pipe dream. People might also want to turn back to my conversation with John Young of Cryptome.org a few years ago, where he said uh, online anonymity is a pipe dream. Um, so I just don't want to give people the false impression that anything they do on tour will really be an anonymous. And even if it, if so, we know, for example, that the NSA has come out and specifically said they are specifically tor- targeting tour data and they will take anything that they can get from that and store it. And, uh, and anything that's encrypted, they will store. And even if it's encrypted now, um, again, as I say, uh, I don't think there's an encryption that exists that they don't already have the ability to crack. But even if they do not have the ability to crack it now, they will will in the future, and that uh, data is being stored for that future time anyway. So so there you go. Um, once again, people who want to know more about encryption and the quantum computing and how that factors into all of this, I'll throw in some links to that. So, uh, so a lot of stuff to talk about there. Thank you for opening that can of worms, Brian, and we'll talk about that more in the future. Uh, Andrew writes, how do you suggest like-minded people can keep in touch globally when censorship sets in and the internet is banned or shut down for one or all of us? Uh, important question, Andrew. I don't think that the internet is going to be shut down for everyone. I don't, I, I mean, I understand the idea of the Mad Max scenario and how that would be a terrible scenario, given how deeply we are embedded into this matrix right now. Turning off the system all at once would be disastrous, and it would certainly be chaos from which they could derive order. But I would say uh, that's not the way I see as the most likely vector of attack. I think the probably the most likely thing they're going to try to do is bring in the internet ID card that they've been talking about for years. One way or another, by hook or by crook, I think they're going to try to do that to eliminate any vestige of anonymity on the internet or any possibility. So you'll need to probably fingerprint or thumb scan or what have you to get online. And that will 
be maybe over the course of a generation, but I'm sure they're going to try to, to enact that. So that's, I think, probably the biggest threat. And there will always be technological ways around it. People who will be able to come up with fake fingerprinting techniques and the like. But barring that type of shenanigans, people who just want to, to avoid that altogether, I think we have to start preparing for the eventuality of being taken offline. And we have to do that in a number of ways. One of them is low-tech. Um, they, they can stop people from getting online and sharing information that way. But people have to remember, I mean, fax machines helped bring down the Soviet Union back in the day. That was the technology, the communications technology that did it. That still exists. Um, hard, hard line telephones are still something that people should probably look into having one um, again in case, because again, uh, we can't rely on this, these cellular networks, which are all, again, just completely tracking systems and the like. Um, if a hard landline, which fewer and fewer people actually possess these days is is one of those things that would likely um, survive even if they do try to shut down the the modern uh, uh, cell phone communication telecommunication grid so I think we have to look into low-tech as and keep preserving that low-tech technology as one one uh, one way that we'll be able to get around that in the future and if we can build up uh, at least at least support networks of activists who who can be remain connected through those types of low-tech technologies in the event of a blackout that would be that would be worthwhile looking into so there's a lot of different things to say about that but again the most important thing we can be doing is trying to work around the system right now to make a system that they cannot shut down with the flip of a switch building up our own mesh networks and the like um, which has nothing to do with them which is completely a- apart from their system and yes they will try to attack it if it becomes big enough but we will deal with that when it comes. I think the important point is to have our own infrastructure and to build that up as much as possible while we still can. Uh, John writes, Googling start page gives a whole list of links to articles start, uh, stating start page is a virus and should be removed immediately. This will clearly put many people off using it. Uh, can you reassure us that start page is a genuine alternative to those search engines run by enterprises who are a few kangaroos short in the top park? That's a very interesting analogy, John. Thank you for that. I'm going to assume you're from down under. Um, I have no idea what that what that metaphor actually means, but uh, I can imagine a few uh, a few light bulbs uh, short of a full case of light bulbs. No, there's something like that. All right, I understand what you're saying. Uh, yes. So start page as a Trojan. Uh, this is interesting. So uh, if you go to start page, for example, you go to their support center, they have a post up. I've tried to remove start page, but it keeps coming back. Trojan start page virus slash malware. Um, and they ex- go on to explain in this post that there is now a Trojan that has been created by hackers called Trojan start page that um, installs start page on your computer so that you can't get rid of it. And this is, I mean, this is bizarre, but this is as clear as you can get as a a cyber false flag trying to set up start page as if it is a Trojan, as if it is something that's infecting your computer and and literally putting it in the name Trojan start page so that everyone who Googles it will find, oh, this is a Trojan or everyone who will associate it with with the name itself. Just a clear false flag. So that's, I mean, that's just craziness. And uh, next time I have uh, Dr. Catherine Albrecht on the program, I will ask her about that and uh, get her take on it. But yes, uh, the start page, the Trojan, has nothing to do with startpage.com, which of course is just a search site. So, uh, so there's uh, again, it's just a clear false flag, and uh, and pretty pretty telling, I think. I mean, it shows that they're they're concerned about start page and what it's doing. 
Okay, very, very final question. Well, I know we're way over time here, so just one more question. Charles writes, uh, me and a friend were discussing Bitcoin, and we were wondering, in the future, uh, when computing will become more and more powerful, will Bitcoin devaluate, devalue, because of the lower mining cost, end quote. Uh, thank you for the question, Charles. Uh, basically, the answer is no. Uh, Bitcoin is not just something that exists in infinitude that is being mined through these techniques. It is something that is... Uh, there is only a set amount, and that set amount is algorithmically programmed. It will run out, I can't remember the year, 2037 or something. All of the Bitcoin will be mined by then. And uh, they control how much Bitcoin is produced each each week or each month when it is produced by filtering or by, by jiggering and pokering with the uh, the complexity of the encryption that's used, to, that they, the, the puzzle that the computers have to solve. So so it is very well regulated in terms of how, how much is being released, and it does have a set limit. So there will be no devaluation of Bitcoin in that sense because it will never... It will never exceed. They'll never be able to grow past that. It's been hardwired. It's it's baked into the cake, as it were. Um, whether or not it can be counterfeited, um, again, that's a question. But it would be. I, I don't even. I can't even imagine how that would happen because the blockchain is is globally public. Um, no, I don't think devaluation is is the problem with start uh, with Bitcoin. I think the the real concern would be well, what if they do do enact the Internet ID card, or what if they you know, do shut off the internet or, or what have you, um, then basically all this virtual currency is exactly worth the paper that it's not printed on. It's just digital bits and bytes and it's gone. So so I think there are definitely problems with Bitcoin, but I'm not one of these people who denounce it as the spawn of Satan. I am not one of these people who announce it as the second coming of Christ. It is neither. It is simply a tool that we can use, one tool in the uh, in the quiver that we can pull out and uh, and aim with our crossbow of liberty <laughs> at the uh, at the would-be tyrants of the fiat money su- supply system. I hope that's an interesting enough analogy for you because I think I'm completely spent out and I really do have to get packing for my trip here. Uh, I want to thank everyone for all their comments and feedback regarding the uh, the recent episode about the state is not great, talking about statism as a religion. Um, very, very interesting comments. Um, some of them way off the wall for me, people asking me if I'm advocating for Sharia law. Uh, another person asked me if I was arguing for techno-fascism, despite the fact I, I spent the last 25% of the podcast specifically warning that techno-fascism was the worst of all possible statist religions. I mean, just some bizarre comments. But the comments, I mean, some of them very, very genuine questions about, well, what is the solution? It, it shows me that there is a very, very big lack of understanding about anarchist thought or philosophy at all out there. And, uh, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while now. Back when I started the Corbett Report, it was never meant to be something that everyone can tune into and just relax and go, oh, this is exactly what I expected to hear and exactly what I wanted to hear. When I started the Corbett Report, one of the the most transgressive things I could possibly say is 9-11 was an inside job. That is no longer the transgressive act that it used to be. And, uh, and quite frankly, it is almost de rigueur in the alternative media now and has become widely popularized and even time magazine magazine like are writing about false flag terrorism. So we have achieved major victories, but if we do not understand the basic underlying point of, of all this tyranny, then we can be led down the wrong alleys, the wrong corridors, the wrong byways to, to lead to the wrong solutions. So, oh, if only we had a world government that could prosecute nations that do this, like the United States uh, that do these uh, false flag attacks. 
Of course, that's the, the, the wrong solution. It's going in the wrong direction. We have to understand the roots of the system, and we can't do that without understanding the statism versus anarchy paradigm. And, uh, and there's so much misunderstanding about anarchy out there that I now realize that one of my main points going forward will have to be more in terms of educating about that and about the real solutions, rather than simply just looking at the little bits and pieces of the, the, the conspiracy puzzle that so many people already know by now, and, and are, there's so much good work coming out on that front. I can see that uh, we'll have to start doing some more uh, public education on issues that will cause more uh, more kickback. But again, the corporate report was always meant to be transgressive and to get people critically thinking and critically engaged. I am not here to uh, get you to turn your mind off and to, to just be uh, content with what you're hearing. I think you should be very, very much engaged and aware and thinking and, uh, and challenging your paradigms. That's what this work is about. I hope you'll join me on that uh, journey. Again, I'll be off for most of the next two weeks uh, with my assignment for GRTV, so very little in the way of updates on the website. But as always, I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. You can get them in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. You can leave uh, comments on this YouTube video. You can leave a video response. You can tweet at CorbettReport. Until August, my friends, that's pretty much going to do it for now. So I'm looking forward to talking to you then. Take care.